Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm thrilled to talk with Jonas Kreienbaum about his new book, A Sad Fiasco, Colonial Concentration Camps in Southern Africa, 1900 to 1908. The book is a fascinating comparative study of concentration camps in South Africa and in German Southwest Africa. And it's a book with lots of specific insights, but it also has important implications for studying concentration camps as practice and as ideology across the colonial world. Jonas has a doctorate from Humboldt University and is finishing up a tenure at le- as a lecturer of the Historical Institute of the University of Rostock. And I'm looking forward to talking with him about his book. So with that, Jonas, thanks for being with us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Hello, Kelly, uh, and thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, very happy to talk to you about this book today. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, and before we get to the book, uh, maybe you could tell the audience uh, just a little bit about yourself uh, and, and about how you ended up being a historian. Yeah, I can do that. Um, I mean, probably like like many people listening, I'm simply, I have been interested in doing history also in school. And that was the starting point to decide Okay, I'll I'll study that at a university, and after I, I guess the first year, I was pretty sure that I would want to do that for probably the rest of my life, and I, and so like doing a PhD afterwards came kind of naturally, but it was only rather late in being a student at a university that I discovered that colonial history is really uh, one thing that I, that I'm most interested in, and. Um, that kind of kept me in different shades from then on. What is it about colonial? What, why is it colonial history that, that has become your passion? Actually, I'm not quite sure why, why that is the case. It's just, it turned up sometime late during my coursework, um, like in the fourth or fifth year of studying. And um, I was fascinated. Um, and I was especially fascinated when this link was made between like colonial history and what happens in the mid of the 20th century, especially like Nazi crimes, because this big debate was raging on in Germany, but I guess also more internationally on whether there is a continuity of maybe genocidal violence. And I was really intrigued by these kinds of questions and wanted to know more about it. And I especially wanted to like, um, to me, there was kind of a, um, of a link between that this might that there might be a, a German special path of genocidal violence in the colonies that then becomes genocidal violence in Europe during the Nazi era. And I wondered whether that is a correct line of argument or whether it wouldn't be like better to to understand colonialism in a in a comparative way and to to um, to understand that maybe there is a this genocidal potential. Um, not only in German colonialism, but also in British and American and French, etc. And so from there, I started to look and try to compare colonial wars with each other. And through this kind of process, I, I, I became familiar with camps in colonial contexts. So, so those listeners who are professionals probably have some sense of the field you're describing. But I imagine if if people didn't go to graduate school, they're they're kind of wondering how someone can possibly know enough about the world to be a colonial historian. So so what does that mean in terms of training? Does that mean 12 languages? Does it mean another 10 years added on to your PhD where you become acquainted with a bunch of regional histories? What 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 is what prepares somebody to be a, a, a colonial or global historian? That's a good question and um probably the most 
honest answer would be that uh, you should probably do these kinds of things, like learn a lot of additional languages, um, especially like languages. Now, if you're if you're looking at Southwest Africa or Southern Africa, that you would be able to speak Ochiherero, for instance. Of course, that would be great, and um, there are many good reasons to to do that. But I have to admit that that I'm not able to do that. Um, so I mainly work with with my German and my English knowledge. Um, of course, when it comes to colonial history, and that's probably true for many for many histories, most of the source material that has survived the past 100 years um, has been recorded by the agents of the colonial power and is thus written either in my cases in English or in German. Um, well, there's hardly any written evidence that survived uh, that is written, for instance, in Ochihiriro. Um And so, in a way, you come pretty far with these Western languages. But on the other hand, of course, it would be it would be great if uh, we had many historians that would be able to to look at both sides more properly. But like I said, I guess the, the bigger problem here is that the one of source material, the availability of source material, and not the language skills. No, that's a really valid, a really important point. I, I keep thinking that we would all be better historians if we could all live to be 150 or 200 years old, but that wouldn't change the source problem. Yes, um, absolutely. So, well, let's turn to the book specifically. What, um, what's your high-level elevator pitch summary of the book? What's the two-minute description or one-minute description of the book that you give people when they ask you what you were writing this about? I guess that there would be two possibilities, but the one possibility is to start with Nazi camps that is seems everybody is interested in and uh, to look where did they come from and is there really this connection to these earlier camps that have been termed concentration camps too. Um, and I think many people seeing that for the first time would assume there must be a connection. Um, but as I think I, I make clear in the book, um, I think it's not that straightforward. And um, also Nazi actors made that connection themselves and said, hey, we just copied that concept from the British in South Africa but if you look at it more closely, um, you will find out that those colonial camps were different in very important respects. Um, and that's maybe the, the, the one main point that this book tries to establish. Well, you look at concentration camps in, in South Africa and in, in, in German Southwest Africa. So let's take them one at a time. Uh, so, so looking at the British in, in South Africa, why did the British opt to use concentration camps in their conflict with the Boers? And, and, and how does that purpose change over time? Mm -hmm. So I think what is really important to understand about those British camps, but it would also be true for the concentration policies that were enacted a bit earlier in Cuba by the Spanish or uh, by the, the, the U.S. military in the Philippines, is that they were fighting colonial wars. And these colonial wars were really hard to win. I mean, despite them having machine guns and stuff, it was really hard for the colonial militaries to win these kinds of wars. And that was especially true because the, their foes at some point in time decided to fight as guerrillas. So they would avoid big battles uh, and just like hit the British lines of communication and then disappear as soon as strong British troops would, would uh, enter the field. And so the British generals thought, okay, um, but these Boers, they can only keep on fighting like they fight because they are supported by the civilian population in the countryside. They shelter them, they give them food, they give them ammunition, new recruits, and they inform them about our movements. So if we could effectively hinder any contact between those civilians and the fighters, then we would solve our uh, our problem here, and we would be able to finish that guerrilla phase of the war. And so what they did was they tried to, they, they used something they called a scorched earth policy. They burned down everything of use in the countryside, all the farms, all the food stock, um, all the livestock, 
uh, they, they took away and they removed the whole civilian population uh, of certain areas and put them into newly established concentration camps. And so in that sense, these camps were part of a, of a bigger counter-guerrilla strategy. And that is the primary function they had to, had to serve, they had to fulfill in British eyes. And I mean, now I can like go a step back and say, and if you look at this, that these camps were mainly an, an, an instrument in fighting a colonial war, I think it becomes pretty obvious that Nazi camps had a very different story about them because there was no war or no colonial war in 19, 1933, but they were rather instruments of uh, fighting a domestic opposition at first. And so that would be one point where you can see, okay, the, the context in which they develop is a very different one. So when the British create these, are they imagined as permanent or temporary or, or what is their, or, or have they not thought that that far in the future? They were definitely meant to be uh, only temporary. So actually the British thought, if we do this, um, the war will be over very soon. Um, it turned out then that it, it dragged on longer and longer um, for, for two, for three years. But the moment the war ends, um, the camps in a way become redundant. I mean, they, they function as kind of repatriation centers, though you couldn't get all the civilian population, and that is in this case, Boer population, so white Afrikaners and as many uh, Africans, black Africans. Um, and of course, it needs weeks and months to get them back into the countryside and to settle down again. And so the camps will um, exist for a few more months, but they were meant to be temporary. That's absolutely for sure. And that's, again, another big difference to Nazi camps, where this isn't the case from the mid-1930s onwards. Mm -hmm. I'm struck, as I was reading your book, I was struck about the fact that there are, there are people here who, who are captured and brought, mm -hmm. and there are people here who, I guess volunteer would be too strong of a word, but... Um, go relatively willingly. Um, yes, that's true. So, so how does that work, and how do those two groups interact once they get in the same camp? Mm -hmm. I mean, both groups are interning these two groups: those that come rather voluntarily, and those who are really forced into them. Um, we only have that for the for the so-called white camps, so for the camps for Boers in South Africa. That's not the case in Southwest Africa, and I think it's. Hard, or rather not the case for Africans in South Africa. Um, the idea is for those voluntary surrenderers that the British think, okay, the, the major phase of the war is over now because we have invaded the, the, the formerly independent Boer republics of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. We have sent troops into their capital cities. The war should be over now, but it isn't. The Boers start to fight as guerrillas. But the British think that um, many Boers do not really want to keep on fighting. Um, but they do not dare to stop fighting because they think that their fellow Boers would force them back into the field. And so the British think, if we establish those camps and we can offer these Boers that are warrior fighting effective protection, they would come in with their families and stop fighting and we would, uh, yeah, we would be a lot closer to finishing that war. So that was the one group that came in. And then, and after a few weeks, it turns out, this is just the minor group. And the bigger group are those that are um, taken into these camps against their will as part of the scorched earth policy that I've described earlier. And as you can imagine, the ones, the one that, the ones that come in uh, involuntarily, they are uh, called the, the, the joiners um, soon. And the ones that come in against their will and who would want to, to, to keep on fighting the war against the British, they are called the bitter enders. And We've got lots of testimony uh, from people who were in those camps um, who who say that there were bitter quarrels between those groups and a lot of yeah, a lot of hatred and 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 friction, um, especially as the British tend to to um, rather give posts inside the camp, like camp police posts, to those who came in voluntarily, as one can imagine, and thus kind of putting more oil into these uh, into the fires between those two groups 
So I think if people who don't know much about these camps know anything, it is this widespread perception that these camps were very deadly. So, so mm-hmm. why are they so dangerous to the people in the camps initially? And is that on purpose or is that structural or, or why is it so deadly initially? It's a good question and one that I really struggled a long time with answering. Um, my idea is that it's not intentional. Um, that these camps were not about extermination, but that is something that you'll often find in the literature, um, be it on like be it a global history of the concentration camp, there you'll find the idea, but also in like specialized studies on the camps in South Africa, but especially on the camps in German Southwest Africa. Um, the idea that they were about extermination, of course, comes from the, the seeing that thousands of people died in those camps. So we're talking about there were probably 250,000 persons interned in the South African camps and some 50 to 60,000 died there. So that is a fifth, roughly. Um, In German Southwest Africa, the numbers are smaller, but the relative mortality is even higher, with over 40% probably. And so if we look at these kind of numbers, then it suggests itself that there must be a plan behind this high mortality. However, I don't think that is the case. Um, And one point to argue in that way is that you simply do not find, I think, any real empirical evidence um, in the sense that that, that people running those camps are stating, ah, we want to kill them or we want to create conditions where many die. Um, On the contrary, for German Southwest Africa, you've got you've got the, the German Chancellor saying, ah, now we have to establish concentration camps for the maintenance of those Herero that have survived the war so far. Because there was indeed, I would say, a genocidal policy before those camps were established. So, but you asked, why do so many die? Um, and I would say there are a bunch of factors coming together um, to, to cause that result. Probably the most important one is that we are in colonies here, colonies that are, especially in the case of German Southwest Africa, only have only recently been colonized. So the infrastructure in those colonies is um, yeah, really rudimentary. You hardly have any railings, or if you have, they are like um, they don't have the capacity to bring enough foodstuffs, for instance, from the coast to the inland where the camps are. Um, and so I think a case in point is that the German militaries in, in the colony fighting, they don't even get full rations. But if you think about it, that the Germans would first of all want to feed their own troops as good as they can, then the civilians, the, the, the European civilians, then probably the free Africans, and at the bottom of the hierarchy would be the prisoners of war, as they called them, in the camps, then you can imagine that if you can't feed your own troops properly, you will probably uh, give not enough food to, to the people in those camps. Um, so this, the combination of these logistical problems and this kind of hierarchy thinking um, is a major point. Then point two, we've got really major, major diseases, epidemics spreading in those camps. The major killer in South Africa is measles. But the British doctors in those camps um, perceived measles to be like an act of God. They couldn't do much against it. Um, and you can imagine that is not a very good precondition to fight such an epidemic in those camps. Um, in German Southwest Africa, you have scurvy raging in those camps. And you would kind of expect them to know what they should do about it. But if you look into, into the records and what those German military doctors write, they really think this is a contagious disease. While in fact we know it's it's a lack of vitamin C that's causing scurvy, um, and they experiment with all kinds of of medicines, but that doesn't really work out. So a lack of medical knowledge is important here too. Um, then we've usually got military men running those camps, but and one officer is really stating that in his memoir, um, you couldn't get any decorations for running a camp, so they weren't really interested in that. Um, and there's a big a big degree of indifference of these military men concerned with running those camps. Um, And of course, also, especially when there were Africans in those camps, um, racist notions of, ah, these are are 
in their language, tribes that are meant to die out in any way. We don't have to do that much about it. It's not such a big deal. And it's not causing a scandal back in Germany or back in Britain when Africans die in those camps. That also plays a, a major role. And my fourth and last point would be that given these logistical problems, and I can best show that for German Southwest Africa, um, you've got certain locations where you can you, where you can really run those camps. And that would usually be on the coast where your ships would come and, and, and deliver foodstuffs because German Southwest Africa is hardly producing any food at all. And South Africa, with this scorched earth policy, has got a, a problem to, to, to supply itself to. Um, so they established those camps at the coastline in German Southwest Africa or at the rail line. Um, but at the coast, the climate is way colder than in the inland. And the, the internees that are brought to those coastal camps where they could be fed, in theory, um, die because it's so cold. Um, and the Germans also bring them there because they are the harbors and their labor is needed there to unload ships and to build railway, railway lines for the railway lines. So there are loads of factors coming together that I would say that are not um, an expression of a wish to exterminate those inmates, but that are um, yeah, that would kind of differently, but that nevertheless have the result that tens of thousands of people are dying. Hmm. So, so let me back up one step because you've referred to this in your answer, uh, but I didn't ask you about it first. So let me fix that my mistake. Um, uh, we talked about the purpose of the British camps. Mm -hmm. But why, how, how did the Germans opt for concentration camps in German Southwest Africa for the same reasons that the British do or similar reasons or different reasons? Mm -hmm. So I, w I would say it's similar because it's also, first of all, uh, about ending this colonial war. But um, in German Southwest Africa, we've got kind of, in a way, we've got two wars at the same time. In the center of the colony, the Herero started a war um, in January 1904, and the Germans fight them. And then in October, the Nama in the south of the colony start to fight against the Germans too. So we've got these two separate scenarios of war. And the Herero are not fighting as guerrillas. So this thought of separating a civilian population from a guerrilla fight, from the guerrilla fighters, as we had that in the British case, um, is irrelevant uh, for the Herero war. The Nama in the south are fighting as guerrillas. But the Nama civilians are not settled down. They are either accompanying the Nama guerrillas in the field, or they are going across the border into British territory where the Germans couldn't reach them. So the Germans had no, no interest and actually couldn't get any civilian population they could turn into camps. What they did was they took those Herero and those Nama that would voluntarily surrender or that would be caught in the field and put them into those camps. That would be like young men, combatants, one could say, but that would also be old men, children, and women. And all of them would be labeled prisoners of war by the Germans. So this, and this was, or the reason to do that was that the Germans wanted to hinder those Herero and those Nama to, to flee again and to go back into the field and to restart fighting. So there was a military purpose behind that too, but it worked kind of differently. It was not part of counter-guerrilla strategy. So it was similar, but not the same. And then so, maybe what, yeah. what, Sorry, what, go ahead. what I could add mm -hmm. is you asked me about like, why did they start to use those camps? And I would argue for South Africa and for German Southwest Africa, the military reason was the primary reason. But once these camps are established, there are more reasons coming along or more purposes that these camps were supposed to fulfill. Um, and if you want to, I can, I could elaborate on that. It's about social engineering. It's about forced labor and it's about punishment. Um, so maybe start with the social engineering point from the, from the perspective of the colonizer. What was really great about these camps was that you had these colonial populations for the first time under your real effective control. Because one of the real problems of colonial rule was that there were so few colonizers in the country and vast distances 
and so the the colonized could always like like um, disappear, could just go somewhere else, and the colonizers couldn't do much about it. So with all the talk of civilizing the the, the natives in, in in quotation marks, um, etc., this hardly worked out because the colonizers wouldn't get hold of the colonized. Now in the camps that was different. For the first time, they had them under their control, and they could now start to anglicize them in the in the British camps or civilize them or and that was especially a major thing in the German camps educate them to work so the idea was those Herero and those Nama that are now in the camps they are forced to work in order to teach them how to work so that there would be willing workers for the future colonial economy after the war um, and if you think about that that would be another another argument uh, that these camps were not about extermination because they were really about saving the workforce or creating a workforce for the future colonial economy. So we can see that this social engineering point and the and the labor point are closely interrelated. So for the labor point, we could add that both in South Africa and in German Southwest Africa, um, especially the colonial military fighting the war um, really had an immense appetite for, for cheap labor. But the only labor they could get were those people in the camps. So they, in the British case, rather paid them to work, um, while in the German case, they rather forced them to work without paying them at all or only tiny, tiny sums. And the last and fourth point was about punishment. I mean, both the British and the Germans perceived the, or perceived the wars as a rebellion of a colonized population. And an illegitimate rebellion. And so they wanted to, to, to drive home the point that the colonized, those in the camps, would never dare to rebel again. And in order to achieve that, they thought that a bit of punishment in those camps uh, would, would, would be a good thing. So to sum it up, I would say we've got a military purpose behind the camps. We've got a social engineering, an education purpose. We've got a labor purpose and we've got a, the purpose of punishment. You've referred to camps in, in British South Africa that are for indigenous Africans. Do, do those look more like the camps for the Boers, or do those look more like the camps in German Southwest Africa? I would say they look more like the camps in German Southwest Africa. Um, but I have to mention that we know really, or we, you can know a lot about the, the Boer camps um, because the British created but at least they kept uh, many 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 records on those camps and we've got quite a lot of of um, collected memories of inmates in those boer camps but we don't have that at all for the african camps so what i've written about them and what others have written about them is really um, pieced together from from uh, very scattered and and uh, oh, scattered and, and only fragments of information. So we, we can't be too sure how these black camps, they were called like that, looked like. However, there are several things that rather remind me of the German Southwest African camps, and that starts with how these camps looked like. Those British camps for the Boers were tented camps. So you had, um, there are pictures where you see like hundreds of white so-called bell camps in neat rows um, constituting the camp. The black camps didn't have those tents because the British thought the tents are too good for the Africans. Um, so the Africans had to, had to build like kind of huts um, with the material that they would find in the countryside. And that was actually the same thing as the Germans did in Southwest Africa. So I think from, if you look at those camps, um, from, if you look at their architecture, uh, you would see uh, way more similarities between the, the, the camps in Southwest Africa and the African camps in the black camps in South Africa than between the black camps and the white camps in South Africa. And also when it comes to, to um, things like the social engineering component, when Africans were interned, it was always about making them useful as laborers in the service of Europeans uh, in the time after the war. When it came to the Boers, it was about anglicizing them, about modernizing them. It was about making them into good 
British subjects that would be loyal to the crown. And I would say there's, there's a big difference too. So we don't, can't know that much about the black camps as about the white camps, but from what we know, I would say um, you see a lot of similarities and it doesn't matter if the colonizers were Germans or British um, when they interned Africans. So who is Emily Hobhouse and what is she, why is she important in the story? Emily Hophouse was a, a, an English woman who traveled to South Africa. Um, and yeah, when, when news reached Britain that these concentration camps were established and that there are Boer families in them that might be in need of charity, in need of help, there were several organizations trying to, to collect um, uh, money and, and, and uh, things those internees would need. And Emily Hyphouse was sent down to South Africa to distribute these kinds of goods. And in that capacity, she visited several of the concentration camps, the white concentration camps um, in uh, the Orange River colony, as the Orange Free State was renamed after it was invaded by Britain. And so she witnessed the horrible situations uh, in those uh, white concentration camps and she decided and when she saw that more and more inmates would come in and that she, could, she couldn't change much with the few things she had with her she decided to go back to Britain and to raise awareness in Britain about the situation in those camps and she really caused a scandal in the summer of 1901 and that actually is very important because um, she managed to cause that scandal and the and politicians in Britain started to worry about those camps. And um, they really, it, and I think she really managed to change um, how these politicians looked at those camps and that they perceived they had to do something about it. And then in the summer and, and fall of 1901, you can um, read from the communication inside, like the war ministry or the, the uh, what the what the High Commissioner in South Africa writes to his superior Joseph Chamberlain, the the secretary for the colonies, that we really have to have to have to mobilize all the money we can um, to put everything into those camps that could be of any help, and it doesn't matter what it costs. And I think that again would be a pretty clear sign that there was no intention to kill off the inmates, although there is a mortality crisis, but they really wanted to change that, especially when it was about white inmates, because that mattered in England itself. That had the potential to cause a scandal. But on the other hand, what is really telling to me is that Emily Hoppers wasn't visiting any black camps. And she, she was, wasn't causing a fuss about the equally high mortality in the black camps. And I think that tells a lot um, about how important it was whether you interned Africans or white um, or, or yeah, uh, European descendants. And again, I would say this mainly explains the differences in the, in the camps in German Southwest Africa and in South Africa, uh, the question of who was really interned there. Yeah, the, the next logical question, this goes back to some of the things you said before, is, is there a similar... Uh, debate or outrage or concern on the part of German politicians and, and civilians in Germany about the treatment of um, inmates in the, in, in the camps in Southwest Africa? Actually, uh, not, no. Um, I would say there's hardly any debate with one exception, and that is the missionaries. So what we do have in German Southwest Africa is that in nearly every camp, we have a missionary of the Rhenish Missionary Society. And as you can imagine, these missionaries were there to, to Christianize um, Hirero Nama. And so in the case that uh, the earlier genocidal policy associated with, especially with the name Luther von Schroter, who was the commanding general in 1904-1905 in German Southwest Africa, if that genocidal policy had, had like succeeded to the end, um, they kind of would have lost their uh, their reason to be in the colony at all. So you can imagine they weren't proponents of that kind of policy. Um, actually, they, they had a pretty ambiguous role, but 
what we can say is that they try to ameliorate the situation in the camps. So they would, um, and they would also, uh, they would report back to Germany. Their headquarters were in Wuppertal in, in Western Germany. And then in turn, um, like the superiors in Wuppertal would try to establish contact with the, with the government in Berlin and uh, try to, to make them change the policy in, in Southwest Africa. And actually, it's this Rhenish Missionary Society that first um, proposes to establish concentration camps um, as, a, as, a, as a policy shift away from that genocidal policy of killing off all the Herero in the, in the Omaheke Desert to allowing them to, to become prisoners again and to put them into those camps. So the Rhenish missionaries try to, to change something about it, But this doesn't translate into like a public discussion of the mortality, high mortality rates in German Southwest Africa. That is not happening. Um, but I would say, as you can see with the, with the white and the black camps in Britain, I think European, um, I don't know, European standards um, wouldn't allow for a scandal in 1902 or 1904 being made, being caused about high mortality rates about uh, among Africans. I think that is simply uh, an expression of the racism of the time that, that uh, for instance, the Rhenish missionaries didn't even try to, to, to cause a public scandal. So let's broaden this out a little bit. You've, you've told a story that at least in part suggests that these camps emerge out of similar structural problems or structural or strategic challenges. And mm -hmm. presumably there are similar strategic challenges across time before you get to the, what you might call the modern period. So, so most of the study of concentration camps I'm aware of is, is really over the last century and a half. Mm -hmm. Are there concentration camps or some kind of similar thing? I mean, is it, even, is, is it even worth talking about a concentration camps in the period before 1850? Is, is there a similar kind of challenge and response or, or are these really a new thing? Of course, you can answer to that question in, in different ways. If we look at the terminology, we can easily say, okay, the term is coined in 1901 in the context of the South African War. Um, and so, in a way, the story starts there. And actually, th th it's kind of interesting, I think, that in many of those, I would call them global histories of the camp, um, you find that the concentration camp was invented on Cuba during that Cuban War of Independence of 1895 to 1898. But um, as specialists on that particular case have stressed, Andreas Stucki, for instance, um, that weren't camps. And they weren't called camps uh, in 1896. Um, so the, really, if we want to talk about the invention of the concentration camp, I think we have to look at South Africa. What we do have is situations of guerrilla war. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really not an expert on that, but you have that in the American Civil War or you have that in, in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but to my knowledge, we don't have like, like uh, camps being used to intern civilians. In that case, another forerunner, in a, but, but a distant forerunner, would be prisoner of war camps that, for instance, exist during the Napoleonic Wars. We've got kind of forerunners with workhouses, um, but it would be pretty difficult now, I think, to explain where where connections could be. But I think there's there's much to to that to say that workhouses are kind of a forerunner. But we. I would really say the concentration camp is something that is really coming together um, around the turn of the century and not a lot earlier. And to what extent do the people who are making, who are deciding to create these camps and those who are administering them, mm -hmm. to what extent are they aware of camps in other places uh, and adapting or even copying mm -hmm. um, strategies or, or or structures, or are they simply responding to similar imperatives with similar responses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that is the the second very big question that, mm. that uh, when I when I said earlier in an elevator pitch, what would you stress? That would be the other <laughs> thing I I, uh -huh. I could stress, um, and I thought a lot about that. Um, 
So if we look at these four cases I've already mentioned that are all around the year of 1900, Cuba, the Philippines, South Africa, and German Southwest Africa, um, we've got good reason to believe that they, are, that they all influence um, each other, or that, that the British are influenced by what has happened on Cuba a few years earlier, that the Germans were influenced by what the British did. But as so often, it's really hard to detect, we could say, the smoking gun that a uh, British general says, hey, now we'll do what, what Valeriano Weyler did on Cuba a few years ago. Um, so the most clear-cut case that such a process of learning from one colony to the next happens is, in my uh, eyes, between South Africa and German Southwest Africa. Because um, we've got several of these, of these key actors that are involved both in managing the camps in German Southwest Africa and who take the decision to establish camps in the first place have first-hand knowledge of the British camps in South Africa. And here I'll only name one to make an example. We've got a guy who's called Friedrich von Lindequist. He was in German Southwest Africa in the 1890s, and he's then appointed as the consul general, um, so a top diplomat of the Kaiserreich in South Africa during the South African War. And in that capacity, he's visiting several of the South African concentration camps for whites. And he's reporting back to Berlin to the later Reichskanzler, the Chancellor, Bernhard von Bülow. And in 1904, these two guys sit in Berlin and are involved in the decision to establish concentration camps now in German Southwest Africa. So they knew firsthand, and there are others too that I could mention, um, with the same kind of firsthand knowledge. So that would be the one, the one point that's really, really um, underlining that that process of learning could have happened here. The second one is, and that's may might be even more telling, um, is the terminology from the very beginning. Like when these Rhenish missionary society mentioned the possibility of establishing camps in German Southwest Africa, they spoke of concentrationslager, and as I said. The term had just been coined in English, concentration camp. This mortality crisis in the British camps caused a scandal in the media around the globe. And so this term, concentration camp, was translated immediately into many languages, also into German, as Konzentrationslager. So now it's three years later when German actors speak of Konzentrationslager. From the very beginning, they must have had the British like role model in their minds using that term. So I think here we've got a pretty good case to say, yeah, there was a process of learning going on. But on the other hand, it would be too simple to say it's just copying. Um, like I already mentioned, the situation in German Southwest Africa was different when we look at the war from South Africa. We hadn't had this possibility uh, of interning a civilian population that was settled down in order to, to end a guerrilla war. Um, like I said, the Herero weren't even fighting as guerrillas. So what the Germans had to do, they could only take this a very rough model from South Africa, and they had to adapt it to the specific military colonial war situation in Southwest Africa. And I think that's what they did. So learning is important, copy is important, but it doesn't suffice to explain why the camps looked like they looked there. One of the points you make, I thought was very interesting, which is the need to compare these camps that you talk about in your book with, with camps in the period after 1920 in Ethiopia and Kenya and Algeria. Can you mm -hmm. say more about that point? Yes, of course. Um, okay, so if we're talking about like these, the, the, these camps in the um, wars of decolonization, I think there's a... A pretty good connection in the sense that in these wars of decolonization, we also have a situation of, of guerrilla war. Um, and the, the, um, the motivation for the French military in Algeria or the British military in Kenya or in Malaya um, would be pretty similar to what they had already done in, in South Africa a few decades earlier because they wanted to do this separation thing separate the civilians, control them from any combatants, from any, any, any guerrilla combatants. What would be stronger 
in that scenario is the idea that we we have to win the hearts and minds at the same time so that we so in a way this this element of social engineering of of offering the modernization um would be more important than around the turn of the century um but as i have argued that element is already there in the early 1900s it's just not that uh, that highlighted but i would say the the the, the initial idea behind using, I don't know, um, strategic hamlets in, in Vietnam or new villages in, in Kenya um, is pretty much similar to the idea behind the camps in, in British South Africa. So I, I would see a connection there. Hmm. So, and, and we're starting to run up against a timeline, but maybe the final question about the content, how... How does your research fit into broader studies at the concentration camp universe? And, and where should people interested in, in – what do we not yet know about concentration camps? Where does the field go? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I could say when I started to, to work on that project um, and looking into these, like I said, global histories of the camp institution, for instance um, – what was telling to me is that in those global histories, the, con- the colonial concentration camps were rather briefly mentioned, maybe a few pages, but it wasn't really in-depth research. Um, for South Africa, we do have this in-depth re- research, at least now. There are several new and very good studies that have been published in the past 10 years on that. Not so much so for German Southwest Africa. So what I wanted to do first was like, add to our knowledge um, uh, in-depth research on these early colonial camps. So that would be one thing. What I already said is that this idea of, is there a process of copying um, camps from one colony to the next, and then from maybe colonial context to the First World War, to the Second World War, and so on. That's really something that I that I found very challenging to to prove empirically because often the actors wouldn't might not have stated that they that they tried to copy something when they might have did. Um, but that is really something that 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 I would want to see more in studies about camps to 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 highlight and to find out where did the actors take their ideas from? Did have they been influenced by? by things that happened earlier. And of course, we could also do that for the Gulag, or we could do that for the Laogai, etc. Um, and and I would like to read more about that. So that was w- one thing that I tried to, to achieve, that I tried to do for colonial camps, but I, I would be very interested and I would be happy if the whole field would move a bit more in that direction and try to, to, to establish whether there were contacts between the different camp systems. And that goes, of course, beyond the more comparison of are there similarities or are there differences, but really uh, trying to to establish whether there was a, a causal causal connection. Mm-hmm. No, it would be very interesting to do a comparative study of the curriculum of um, military training schools of the American Marines in the 1920s when they're thinking about Latin America or uh, or or the. Um, American schools that are busy teaching Latin American officers in the 60s and 70s and and so on to see what the militaries are teaching their officers and what they get that from. That's a, that's a very interesting um, interesting subject. I'm sure somebody now has a dissertation project and they'll write you someday and they'll say thank you. Um, but for now, we're about out of time. I always end with the same question or the same couple questions. And the first is, um, I, I wonder, uh, my semester is drawing to a close, although it's not quite there yet. Um, and other people, weirdly enough, may be at spring break right now. Um, I wonder if you could suggest a book or two, or maybe it's a movie or a, a documentary or something, something that was meaningful for you as you were working on this subject or on this book uh, that you think the audience should read or watch. Yes, yes. Uh, I do have th- something. Um mm-hmm. Actually, it's um, if you want to delve into a bit more deeply into these colonial contexts, um, there is a book that is was originally written in German too, but which is just now being translated and published in April um, again by Berkhan Books. That is a book called The Herero Genocide by Matthias Häusler. 
it's a in my to my to me it's a really brilliant book and it's especially um interesting too for this um whole the topic of uh, bigger topic of genocide because he's like um using that book to at the same time criticize how genocide studies are often done um and kind of suggesting a way with this particular example how it could be done better um and i think he gives a very a very convincing answer um so that would be a thing that i can recommend everyone who's interested both in colonial history as well as in genocide studies to read because it will just be published in a few days hmm. Well, that is a timely recommendation. Thank you. And and the last one, question I always ask, um, what are you working on now? <laughs> um, actually, I've just finished a project on um, the 1970s oil crisis mm -hmm. and how they influenced a, a very big debate in the 1970s, but which is today morally forgotten, I think, about establishing a new kind of international economic order, uh, an order that would do more justice to, to what was then called the third world, like the post-colonial countries. Um, and actually, the, the oil crisis was, was or both oil crises in the 1970s were instances where there seemed to be the possibility that the third world could use its newfound oil power to get concessions from the capitalist countries from, from the United States, from Britain, etc., in the direction of that kind of a more equitable new economic order. So I've moved, moved from colonial history to post-colonial history, but it's still about North-South relations. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps your next project will move to whatever is after post-colonial history. I'm not sure we have a label for that yet. <laughs> yeah, but that's true. I'm moving to the 80s and 90s now. <laughs> I'm sure that my advisor would look at me sternly and say, that's not really history. It's not old enough, but that's okay. Well, archives but, are opening up now. <sighs> thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. Uh, again, for the listeners, we've been talking to Jonas Kreienbaum about his book, A Sad Fiasco, Colonial Concentration Camps in South Southern Africa, 1900 to 1908. And I encourage you to go grab a copy from Amazon or from preferably Berghahn or, um, or the library and go check it out. It's, it's a much richer study than we've had time uh, for right now. Uh, Jonas, I know that you are in Berlin in a uh, period of time where it's not particularly comfortable. And so I wish you the best of um of summers and springs and that your kids will learn lots as they're home for school and that you will be able to get out of your, uh, out of your apartment or house and actually explore the gardens or zoos or whatever it might be. And I hope that we will have a chance to talk again on the new books network sometime. Thank you very much, Kelly. It was great talking to you and discussing the book. Uh, thank you very, very much and everything good to you and to the listeners too. Thanks. Thanks.